0: Well, good morning, everybody, and happy Easter! Um, Easter, uh, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed, uh, and it's good to uh, to rejoice in these things. Let's uh, read together God's word, or let's pray, and then let's consider God's word together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the great and glorious fact of the resurrection uh, of the Lord Jesus from the dead, and uh, your word teaches us that He's the first fruits. Uh, that one day, because He's been raised, we can be confident that. Uh, the death, the, the final enemy has been defeated and, and will be defeated finally for us too. So we uh, give you thanks for the glorious good news of the gospel that promises us eternal life through faith in your son. So as we think about these uh, these things today, we ask that you would uh, cause us to, to think hard and to, to think well, but to rejoice in these great gospel truths and to pledge ourselves to living in the light of them. Uh, please help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already done so, would you please turn to Matthew chapter 27. I'd like to think about uh, Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So Matthew chapter 27, and we'll start reading at verse 57. So Matthew 7, 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Next day, that is the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said Sir, we remember how that impostor said while he was still alive after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them You have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, Why is today April 4th, 2021? Why 2021? 2021. 2021 of what? Well, it's years. Well, why don't we consider this date, the 4th of April, in the 68th year of Elizabeth II, our monarch? Because that's how dates used to be recorded. They would work out the date of accession to the throne of their most recent king or emperor, and they would say this is the whatever year of that person's reign. So we, if we were doing that, we'd say it's the 60th, 68th year of Queen Elizabeth. Well, the reason why it's April the 4th, 2021, is because of the work of a man called Dionysius Exiduus. He was a, a monk, uh, a Christian monk, from a region that we would now place within Russia. Uh, he lived between 470 and 544. The Pope at that time wanted to get uh, a sense of when the current, when Easter dates would be, because Easter is what we call a movable feast, unlike Christmas, which is always on December the 25th, Easter follows the phases of the moon. And so just so that confusion could be erased, uh, the Pope commissioned Dionysius Exiguus to come up with a table of dates of the Easter event into the future. And he did this in the 5th century. Now, up until then, people had been dating the years by uh, the emperors and that had been the, the practice. Uh, so, But uh, he, he wanted to get away from... Dating the years since the Emperor, the Roman Emperor Diocletian, because he had been such a terrible persecutor of Christians. And so Dionysius Exiguus, which is another way of saying Dennis the Little, he calculated the years from the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He worked out when he believed Jesus was born and he then calculated all the years from then. And so he is responsible for our use of the calendar, which is divided into BC before Christ with years descending. Uh, so the years go downwards in number before Christ. And then Anno Domini, which does not mean after death, as I was very often told by kids at school. It means in the year of our Lord. It's Latin for in the year of our Lord. And so the years ascend. And so next year will be 2022. And the one after that will be a further number on from there. And so the Anno Domini calendar is something that was devised by Dionysius Exiguus back in the year 525 AD, in the year of our Lord. But why did he settle on Jesus' birth as being the date from which the calendar began? He needed a fixed point rather than changing the fixed point every few years with the arrival of a new ruler. But why settle on Jesus' birth? Well, we'll get back to that. But let's have a look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I want to think about it in terms of how Matthew presents it And according to three focal points, the first is, is it true? And the next is, does it matter? So we're looking at Matthew's account, what happened? Is it true? And does it matter? Well, according to Matthew's telling of the story of Jesus, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, according to the prophecy of the Old Testament. Uh, He was raised in Nazareth and his early ministry years were spent in the region of Galilee, a long way from Jerusalem, but in that northern part of the country, uh, around the Sea of Galilee and then onto the other side as well. Uh, we, we're told that Jesus made his home in Capernaum, at least for a while, and that also is in the region of Galilee. But Jesus' career eventually took him to Jerusalem and the events that we've remembered on Good Friday uh, of Jesus' crucifixion took place there in Jerusalem. So from Bethlehem via Galilee back to Jerusalem to die. And it's at that point that our story picks up. And so these first few verses that we've read today, Matthew 27, verses 57 to 61, tell us that these events took place on the evening of the day of preparation. Now that's the day when things were prevented, for, uh, prepared for the Sabbath. Uh, and this was a very special Sabbath. It was the Passover Sabbath. We're told there that Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate and he he wanted to uh, take the body of Jesus. Now Joseph of Arimathea was a man of privilege. Uh, he was a wealthy man. He was a member of the Jewish council and that's probably how he had access to Pilate. He was a, a somebody in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, but he was a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus. We're told that in John chapter 19. But he was an upright man, says Luke in Luke chapter 23, and he didn't agree with the council's decision to have Jesus put to death. So Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. And what we see in these verses here is that he wanted to give him a decent burial and he did so with quiet grief. The fact is that Joseph of Arimathea really did believe that Jesus was dead. He obviously admired him for the work that he'd done but now that he was dead he wanted to honour him with a decent burial. Now crucifixion victims were not normally buried. Uh, Roman citizens couldn't be crucified And the Romans only crucified the worst of criminals. It was an act of propaganda. Uh, And so the the crucifixion victims were simply left on the cross until they rotted away and then they were just um, tossed out, really. Uh, So to honour a person who'd been crucified was a very strange thing to do. And it says something about the character of Joseph of Arimathea that he set himself to do that. Because you see, the thing is, the condemned bodies were in fact Roman property. Uh, There were no prerogatives for Jewish people in regard to the the dead bodies on the cross. But Jewish law required a prompt burial. Uh, And so Deuteronomy chapter 21 tells us that a person that was hung on a tree uh, should in fact be buried on that very same day. So it looks as though Joseph of Arimathea wants to honour Jewish law and to honour the memory of someone that he regarded warmly. But the interesting detail in these first four verses is that clearly there's three people who know where the grave is. They know where Jesus has been buried and that needs to be remembered as we look at the rest of our reading. Now Joseph, we're told, took Jesus to a new grave, that is one that had never been used uh, and it was assembled like uh, graves in that time. They were usually dug into rock cliffs if you could afford a family burial spot of this kind. He uses clean linen and these two details uh, combine to show us that he wanted to honour Jesus after he had died, such a shameful death. Uh, for Jews, a person who was crucified was under God's curse. For the Roman world, a person who was crucified was amongst the worst of criminals. Jesus died not only a horrific death, but everything about his death was to to bring shame on him as an individual. And and Joseph of Arimathea was brave enough uh, to uh, to to court that shame and bring some of it on himself, really, by wanting to honour someone that he clearly admired, but that's what he did. And so he wanted to honour him after he'd been so shamefully disposed of. Uh, If you were to go to Jerusalem today, you'll find various first century tombs of the kind that Jesus would have been laid in. Interestingly, no one really knows which tomb belonged to Jesus. Uh, The tour guides will tell you, but no one really knows. Well, Matthew 27, 62 to 66 describes the, the guarded grave. So in verse 62, we read that it's the day after preparation day. In other words, it's the Sabbath. It's the Passover Sabbath. Uh, the authorities' concern is very serious. And so they break the Sabbath. They run the risk of breaking their own Sabbath laws, really, because they don't want a certain event to take place. Now, verse 63 tells us that the burial arrangements that Joseph had made were well known. Uh, and the tomb's location was known as well. It also shows us that the Jews knew that Jesus had predicted that he would be raised from the dead. Now, how did they know that? Was it that Judas, who had been there when Jesus had predicted, famously in all the gospel accounts, we show they show Jesus saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be flogged, beaten, um, spat at, uh, and be crucified. But he always says that he'll be raised from the dead. He gives three of those predictions. So you'll see it in chapter 16. 17 and chapter 20 of the of the gospel of Matthew for instance so it was Judas the source that the uh, the Jewish authorities were quoting but clearly they knew that there was at least some expectation that Jesus was to rise from the dead and they said we need to get that tomb sealed so that no one can come in and pinch the body and then go around telling that terrible story so they say that the last fraud will be worse than the first. The first fraud, clearly, was that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He didn't come out right out and say, I am the Messiah, uh, but, but his deeds, his healings and, uh, and the miracles that he performed and the, and, and the fact that he allowed people to call him Lord uh, clearly indicated to many that he had, in fact, claimed to be the king that, that God had promised to send. But the second fraud that the Jewish authorities were so keen to put aside was any idea that he'd been raised from the dead. And so they asked that the tomb be sealed and it's clear that what they want is to prevent body snatching. In verse 65, uh, Pilate says to them, go, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. Now Don Carson, the American uh, Bible commentator, says that, He paraphrases uh, Pilate's speech. He says, you were afraid of this man when he was alive. Now he's dead and you're still afraid. I mean, who sends a guard to guard a dead body? Uh, what, What good could come of taking his body out of the grave? Well, as we move into chapter 28, we find this combination of fear and great joy. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, Mark chapter 16 tells us that the purpose of their visit to the tomb early on the first day of the week, that's what we would now call Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, uh, they went to anoint Jesus' body with spices. Again, just like Joseph of Arimathea, he wanted to give Jesus a decent burial, the women wanted to go and anoint him as their last act of honour, their last act of of, uh, respect for someone that they loved but who they knew now to be dead, or they believed now to be dead. So they went to anoint him with spices. But on the way there, according to verse 2, the angel of the Lord met them. There was a terrible earthquake and they found the stone rolled away. Now that earthquake brings to mind uh, the appearance of Yahweh on Mount Sinai. When Yahweh appeared there to to, uh, give Moses the law, we're told that that the mountain trembled. And so there's an earthquake as God acts in history to see his son restored to life. But the angel's appearance inspires trembling elsewhere, not just in the landscape, but in the soldiers. And the guards become as though dead, we're told in verse 4. It's interesting, isn't it? They were guarding a dead person, and now they become like dead people themselves through the fear of what's transpiring in the spiritual realm and also its manifestation in the physical one. Again, Don Carson observes, he says, the stone was rolled back, the seal that had been put on it was broken, and the soldiers were made helpless, not to let the risen Messiah escape, but to let the first witnesses in, so they could see what's been going on. Well, the angel speaks words of comfort and assurance to the two Marys. Do not be afraid, he says in verse 5, For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. The stone's been rolled back. He invites the women to look at where the once dead Jesus had been laid. And then he continues, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I mean, how could, how could you possibly process what they've just seen? Uh, an angel, an earthquake, uh, the, the stone of the, of the tomb rolled back and where their dear friend Jesus had been laid, it was empty. How could they not be fearful of all that's going on? It's clear they still didn't understand what was going on But there was something about all this that combined with their fear to bring them great joy, great reassurance. And so they ran off to tell the disciples. And so in verses 9 to 10, we read of the women's meeting with the risen Jesus. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They took hold of his feet and his feet were solid. And they worshipped him. They gave him the adoration and the reverence and the respect and the praise that he deserved because they recognised him. These details have been included by Matthew to show that he was neither a ghost, he wasn't just some apparition, he wasn't some figment of their imagination, he had real flesh and blood that could be grasped, that could be clung to. But as well as that, they wouldn't have been inspired to worship a man who had been so horribly abused Uh, beaten and bloodied, uh, whipped to the very end of his life and then hung up on a Roman cross. There is just no way he could convincingly have presented himself to them as an object worthy of their worship if somehow he'd survived all of that and then just somehow been able to push aside the stone and show himself to them. He he would only have looked like someone who needed hospitalisation at the very best, not someone worthy of their worship. But they clung to his feet and they worshipped him. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a patched up martyr. He was risen from the dead. Well, as our reading ends, we find a plot, uh, the plot to hush up what's just happened. Uh, So the soldiers are paid hush money and they're told to perpetrate a shameful lie. So verse 11, while the women go to Jesus' brothers, some of the guards go to his enemies. And they told the chief priests all that had taken place. Exactly what that includes, we're not told, but it would have included the earthquake, the angelic uh, visitation, all of these things. And even that wasn't enough to convince these hard-hearted enemies of the gospel. And so the Jewish authorities conspired um, you see, falling asleep on the job for a Roman soldier for a guard of any description was was uh, a dereliction of duty. It was punishable by death. But that wasn't uh, going to be the outcome of all of this. Uh, there was to be no punishment for them. In fact, the Jewish authorities say, look, leave it to us. We'll chat to Pilate and make sure that nothing bad happens. They give them a substantial bribe and they persuade them to carry the lie with them. So rather than refute the evidence... The authorities take pains to deny it. Now all this is very interesting. This this persistent lie which according to verse 15 has spread amongst the Jews even down to the time when Matthew was writing his gospel years later. uh, They could have made uh, attempts to try to disprove the actual event. They couldn't disprove the event so they paid money and spread a lie to counter it. Now Jerusalem was not a large city geographically. And as we've said already, the, the, uh, the grave was well known. They only had to find the two women who'd been there. They only had to find Joseph of Arimathea. Pilate could have told him who, who took the body down and laid it in the tomb. Uh, it wouldn't have been that hard to locate the, uh, the, the grave of Jesus. And if they had done and he was still there, then the body would have been in it. Or his disciples wouldn't have been prominent people. They weren't wealthy. They weren't the sort of people who could just slink away the body would have been very easy to produce. The fact that they couldn't was because there was no body to be found. And so we're left with the resurrection of Jesus. And we need to ask, is it true? Well, the burden of evidence says, yes, it was true. It really did happen. Uh, The resurrection was unexpected. Joseph of Arimathea took a dead body into a tomb. He did it to honour him. The women went to anoint a body that they regarded as dead, but they wanted to pay their last respects. No one expected Jesus to be raised from the dead. He'd said it, but they didn't know what to make of those three references. But then, what did the disciples gain from inventing this story? What had they got to get out of it? Um, It made them vulnerable. It put them at odds with the Romans who had taken the guard of the uh, of the body, but it also put them at odds with the Jewish authorities who wanted to do everything to stop the story spreading. These were not powerful people. The disciples were outsiders. Uh, what did they have to gain from inventing the story? In fact, we know that uh, most of the disciples went to their deaths without ever denying it. Uh, a story that led to your death is one you'd quickly chuck in if there was no foundation to it. They went to their desks never denying it because they had no choice. It's what actually took place. There was nothing in it for them to make up this story. Have you ever tried inventing a story? Have you ever tried inventing a story which was uh, so concrete in its factuality and so consistent in its retelling that even though it wasn't true, no one ever came to doubt it? It's hard work. Eventually, the truth will out. But the other thing is if you're inventing a story, if you're making up something that no one expected, something that no one would have believed if you'd try to tell them. If you were trying to make up a story of that kind, in the world of the first century, you would never have had women as your first witnesses. Because in the, court, the courts of the day, women's testimony was virtually regarded as invalid. Now, we might judge them with the standards of our modern enlightened thinking, but that's how it was back in those days. They didn't really have any great regard for the witness of women and so if you were making the story up, you would not have had women as your witnesses. You might have had Joseph of Arimathea, uh, a prominent man, but not women. Um, but the reason that the women are included as the first witnesses is because that's what happened. And again, this is a part of the Bible's uh, nobling of, of women. It just shows uh, that that, uh, that we are all created in God's image and, and women matter to God too. They were the first witness. They were trusted being the first bearers of this great news. The fact is that just because it's improbable, just because it's unlikely, doesn't mean it didn't happen. In fact, there's no better explanation of what went on all those years ago than that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. I was reading a scholar only last week who said that really any educated, any thoughtful person needs to seriously come to grips with the facts of the resurrection and make up their mind on it. Uh, because the facts are, are there and they need to be dealt with. And the best explanation of those facts is that even though Jesus really was dead, he really did come to life again because the tomb was empty. Have you ever heard the saying, you've got Buckley's chance? It's an old Australian idiom. Uh, it's one that occasionally used. We used to use it at school. I don't hear it so much anymore, although I did hear it not too long ago from a member of your congregation. You've got Buckley's is what what, what people will say. So if I was to say to someone, I think Melbourne will win the Premiership, uh, someone might say to me, they've got Buckley's chance. Now, it depends on both of us knowing what that means to, to make any sense at all, but it's a saying that has a particular origin in history. Uh, it means that you've got next to no hope. And the origin of the saying seems to be, uh, it, it comes from very early in, in Victoria's history. I mean, as Victoria was still known as the Port Phillip colony, Uh, The first permanent settlement of Europeans in in, uh, the Port Phillip colony was in 1803 on what we would now call the Mornington Peninsula uh, near where we would now call Sorrento and there was a convict settlement there. So Lieutenant David Collins in 1803 brought down 301 convicts to establish a base in the south of the continent just in case the French started to show too much interest so the British thought it would be good to have an outpost down there. The colony didn't really last very long, but you can still see the evidence there at Sullivan's Bay near Sorrento. Uh, there are graves from, uh, from some of those that didn't make it. But the saying Buckley's Chance comes from the fact that a man called William Buckley escaped from that settlement. In, it was only there for a few months, but in 1803 he was one of several that escaped and he was the only one whose, um, whose remains couldn't be accounted for. Some returned, some were found dead, but Buckley never turned up. He was the one, the only one, that couldn't be accounted for. But then in 1835, a remarkable thing happened. In 1835, John Batman led a party of people across from Tasmania or Van Diemen's land because they wanted extra room for their sheep. And they thought that there was good grazing land over in the Port Phillip district around the Yarra River area. So John Batman came across and they, having come through the Port Phillip heads, they made a camp near uh, on what we would now call the Bellarine Peninsula at a place called, or we now call it Indented Head. And while they were camped there, out from the bush came a six foot seven inch tall white man, a European with a very long beard and dressed in a possum skin cloak. He'd virtually forgotten how to speak English, but it was none other than William Buckley. 32 years later, the man who had escaped all those years ago from the convict settlement on the other side of the bay had turned up over there on the, on the other Bellarine Peninsula. Now if you go to Point Lonsdale on the Bellarine Peninsula even today, just below the lighthouse, you'll find a cave all hoarded up, but it's Buckley's Cave and it's believed that he, he may have sheltered there. Well, anyway, it's called after him. So there we have, in 1803, we have an escapee and we've got an escape that was never really accounted for But in 1835, he turned up again. The question is, how did he get from one side of the bay to the other? Did he walk? Did he then have to swim across the Yarra River? Uh, It was a long walk. There was no permanent water on the Mornington Peninsula. It was covered with very thick bush. Um, He had no real means of maintaining himself. Or even less likely, did he swim across Port Phillip Bay? The fact is, we don't know. But one thing we do know is that 18, in 1835 he turned up there. He was so, however, it was he got there. He was alive. It may seem improbable, but facts are facts. And so the saying Buckley's chance means you've got the slimmest of all possible chances. But the fact is, William Buckley survived. He went on and returned to to European life and became an interpreter between uh, the uh, the Aboriginal population and. Uh, and the European settlers, it may seem improbable, but facts are facts. The resurrection may seem improbable, but facts are facts. The fact is that frightened disciples turned into bold, heroic uh, tellers of the story. This story that really couldn't be explained in any other way, a story you couldn't have made up if you wanted to. And if you had made it up, you wouldn't have had women as your first witnesses. All of these things have been recorded simply because there was no choice. They were true. It may seem improbable, but facts are facts. So is it true? Well, yes, I think the evidence is that it is true. I think Jesus really did rise from the dead. But the next thing is, does it matter? Well, again, the answer to that is yes, it matters very much. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 to 19, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have delighted believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we have more to be pitied than anyone in the world. The fact is, if it wasn't for the resurrection, there would be no Christian faith. Jesus would not be remembered as a great moral teacher. He wouldn't even be remembered as a man who did miracles. The disciples were frightened. They'd given up. They'd seen their, their hero, the one that they'd followed for three years, hung shamefully to die on a cross and they believed he was dead because that's what happens when the Romans have finished with you. But he was raised and the Christian movement began and there is no other explanation for the 2,000 plus years of Christian history except that it began with this improbable but definite event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If Jesus' resurrection could be disproved, if his bones could be produced, there would be no Christianity at all and we'd all have to find something else to do every Sunday. So why Jesus' birth? To be the central point from which Dionysius Exiguus based our calendar? Why before Christ? Why Anno Domini in the year of our Lord? It's because Jesus died and was raised. That's why. And so every day when we look at the date, it's a reminder of the centrality of, of the resurrection as an actual event that took place in human history. Now, C.S. Lewis is someone who, when I was getting my head together about all this, helped me very much just to understand that the the resurrection was something that could actually be believed in as a real event of history, but something that has just the most critical importance. So in his book, Miracles, he says this, The first fact in, in history of Christendom, is a number of people who say that they've seen the resurrection. If they had died without making anyone else believe this gospel, no gospels would ever have been written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, none of them. We wouldn't have them. They were only written because the people who were witnesses to the resurrection convinced others that it was a story that you could base your life on. And so those others wanted the, the, the evidence written down for them. And we have the gospels, the gospel stories uh, as a result. Lewis went on elsewhere in another essay of his and he said the only thing that Christianity can't be is moderately important. He says if, if it's true, it's of complete importance. If it's not true, it's of no importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. So is the resurrection true? The evidence says yes, it is. Is it important? Well, it is. It's of utmost importance. You see, it did happen. It is true. And it really does matter. Because Jesus died for our sins. And the book of Romans, in chapter 4, tells us that he was raised for our justification. Um, if he had stayed in the tomb, we would never have known if the work that he'd done on the cross bore any fruit for us. We would not know if our sins had been paid for. But Romans 4 tells us that he was raised for our justification. And so because he was raised from the dead, all who've put their trust in him know that one day, even though we'll die physically unless he comes soon, we know that on the day of judgment, our sins have been paid for and we'll discover that we are justified before God. We've been declared righteous by God. And so we need have no fear of that eventual meeting with God on judgment day. But that's only the case for those who put their trust in Jesus now. Those who have said, yes, Jesus, your death on the cross was for me. And so does it matter? Well, it matters extremely because your eternal destiny hinges on the decision you make in this life about what Jesus did on the cross all those years ago. Jesus was sent to die to pay the penalty for our sins, but his death was not the end of it all. He was raised to life and the evidence is that it's true. It really did happen and it matters extremely. So pin your hopes on Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who gives you hope of facing judgment day and the confidence that your sins have been paid for, uh, whose resurrection of the dead gives you confidence of an eternal life where all of the disappointments, the sadnesses, the sorrows, the pain, the agony of this life are just not even a memory. They're in the past. This glorious future waits for all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus now please do so. Let's pray. Loving Lord Jesus, we thank you for your obedience, even to death on the cross, that you stooped down from heaven to save sinners like us. Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we declare uh, with Christians throughout all the centuries that you are the one with all the power over life and death. And we believe that you really did roll that stone away and you brought Jesus out from the grave. We thank you that in the light of the resurrection, we can rejoice with fear and trembling like those original witnesses, knowing that, that our sins have been paid for, knowing that we can face whatever the future holds with the confidence that, uh, that we will be raised to eternal new life and reign in eternity with our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for these great and glorious truths that have been guaranteed to us because of the, the certain fact of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the death uh, all those years ago. Please write these things deeply in our hearts. Please help us to live as people of confidence and hope and and genuine persevering faith because of all these things that you've revealed for our sake. We pray in Jesus' name and say thank you. Amen.